What's up, lovely ladies? Dr. Emily Kybert here with Thyroid Strong Podcast. I am a chiropractor, a mama to Elvis in Brooklyn, and I have Hashimoto's, but it's currently in remission. On this podcast, I share simple, actionable steps with a little bit of tough love on how to lose that stubborn weight, get your energy and your life back, and finally learn how to work out without burning out, living with Hashimoto's. What's up, lovely ladies? Dr. Emily Kybert here. Today, we are going to be talking about sleep. These are my top 10 tips to get a good night's sleep with Hashimoto's. Sleep issues and Hashimoto's go hand in hand. We can feel tired all day long, feel like we need a nap, but with life, we can't take that opportunity to take a nap and we push and we push and we push throughout the day, fighting fatigue. When we finally lay down and get horizontal, we feel quote unquote, tired, but wired. Our mind is going, going, going. Our body feels tired, but our mind is being awake. So this takes a toll on us because we feel like we can never get enough sleep no matter what we do. And this cycle is a vicious cycle and it can quickly go downhill. So if you're a woman with Hashimoto's, which you probably are if you're listening to this podcast, who also struggles with losing weight, know that poor quality sleep and poor quantity of sleep can lead to that extra difficulty losing weight. You'll often hear ladies talk about their circadian rhythm or people talk about circadian rhythm. What the heck is your circadian rhythm? Your circadian rhythm is your body's internal clock that recognizes day and night cycles based on external or outside cues. These cues can be light, temperature, food, right? So food triggers to the brain that we are in a certain part of our day and also movement. So along with sleep, the circadian rhythm regulates the natural cycles of your hormones or immune system function, neurotransmitters, and our cells energy production. So if your sleep or your circadian rhythm is off, it can also throw off other things like your metabolism. And when your metabolism is off, it can result in insulin resistance, which can lead to gaining of belly fat, elevated blood sugar, a change in your appetite and eating behaviors. So if you ever notice if you've been sleep deprived or you feel like your circadian rhythm is off, like you've been staying up really late, and then waking up late, you might notice that there is this desire for more snacking or an increased demand for carbohydrate intake. If your sleep or your circadian rhythm's off and it throws off your metabolism, it can also lead to weight gain, increased oxidative stress and inflammation in the body and fatigue. Autoimmune conditions like Hashimoto's and sleep problems also contribute to each other because you need sleep to balance your immune system. So chronic insomnia is associated with an increased risk of autoimmune disease. And the flip side of that, autoimmune diseases are commonly a cause of disrupted sleep. Like I said, that vicious cycle. And autoimmune diseases can lead to disrupted sleep due to brain inflammation. And you could have symptoms such as anxiety, physical pain, muscle pain, joint pain, and cold intolerance. Every Hashi lady just raised her hand and said, yes, that is me. 
So again, this difficult cycle to break. If you have hypothyroid symptoms, right, and underactive thyroid, which you do with Hashimoto's affecting your sleep, you're not alone. I've been there too. In 2019, there was a study that found that 2,224 hypothyroid patients reported significantly poor sleep quality compared to those that had normal thyroid function. So those who had an underactive thyroid had significantly poorer quality of sleep compared to those with normal thyroid function. Some of the classic symptoms of hypothyroidism may include feeling tired but can't fall asleep, aka tired but wired, a shorter sleep time, so a shorter sleep duration, feeling groggy when you wake up, aka I call it hit by a bus, and reduced overall sleep quality. So Hashimoto's, along with other autoimmune conditions, increases neural inflammation, brain inflammation that can disrupt sleep. Here's the cycle again. But disturbed sleep can also create neural inflammation, making brain fog worse. So we need to address factors that interfere with sleep and neural inflammation in order to sleep well. So let's break them down. I'm going to give you 10 and I'll probably give a little bonus. Do not get overwhelmed. You can take notes. You can listen to this again. Some of these are no-brainers. But for those of us who are newer to our Hashi diagnosis, you might be like, what? I've never heard of that before. So take notes. Make a goal. Implement one a week, right? If you do it all at one time, it can feel very overwhelming. And having Hashimoto's or being, being newly diagnosed can already feel overwhelming. So try to integrate one maybe once a week, once every other week. And so you start to build habits. I'm a big believer in momentum over motivation. So building those habits slowly one by one versus trying to dig from that well that has no water that is called motivation, especially when we are really fatigued with Hashimoto's. So let's break down these top 10 tips to get a better night's sleep. Some of them are involved with breathing. Some of them are going to pinpoint and really focus on this neuroinflammation. So number one, hit your optimal protein targets per meal and per day. You've heard me say this before. So low protein intake can make it hard to fall asleep and lowers your quality of sleep. It is in the research and the literature. The amino acid tryptophan, which you usually hear people talk about around Thanksgiving, is a precursor or needed to make melatonin. Think of melatonin like the moon. It should be low in the morning. And as the day goes on, as we go into the evening, it rises. So melatonin is like the moon and is supportive for sleep. However, when we have excessive amino acid intake, this can compete with tryptophan getting into the brain. Some amino acids, such as tyrosine, can be stimulating as well. How does this relate to protein? Protein are the building blocks. They have the essential amino acids. You want to hit 30 grams per meal. So if you have low protein intake, it's going to be harder to fall asleep and it lowers your quality of sleep. 30 grams per meal minimum stimulates muscle protein synthesis. 30 grams is satiating. 30 grams prevents you from snacking, helps maintain your muscle mass. So 
30 grams per meal. If you are trying to put muscle on, increase that to 50 to 60 grams. Once you go beyond 60 grams per meal, that threshold, the literature doesn't support, oh, more protein means better, means more muscle. So the threshold is 60 grams. Number two, carb timing. So carbs are important for helping tryptophan get into the brain. A lot of people find that they need some carbs at dinner to sleep well. So if you're more like a ketogenic diet or limiting your carbs, you might feel that tired but wired at night. What kind of carbs should you be eating? So refined carbs can be inflammatory. So eating a lot of things like noodles, breads, pastries actually reduce your quality of sleep. It's in the, it's in the literature. So the carbs that you get in the evening could be from a non-inflammatory whole food source like sweet potatoes, winter squashes, root vegetables like beets or rutabaga. So if you increase your carb intake in the evening with carbs from the whole food source, I like sweet potatoes personally, it can help you with your quality as well as your timing of your sleep. Number three, timing of your meals when you eat matters with regard to sleep. So if you're intermittent fasting, also known as time-restricted feeding, regular meals will likely help you sleep more than kind of erratic eating. So consistency and timing of your meals is associated with better sleep quality. Who doesn't want better quality of sleep, uninterrupted, not waking up a million times a night. So you want to finish your last meal three to four hours before bedtime. I notice personally, if I have a meal late, which is very rare, I wake up super groggy, foggy in the head, feel like I can't function. So finish your last meal three to four hours before bedtime. Number four, if you drink caffeine, like myself, I highly recommend not doing it after 12 noon. This to me sounds like a no-brainer, but how many people, like how many times do you see people drinking coffee at three, four, five at night? My mother-in-law sometimes drinks coffee at 10 at night to help her go to sleep, <laughs> but she goes to sleep at 2 a.m. But it can be easy to forget that caffeine can keep you up at night. And if possible, try giving up all stimulants for a week if you have tried to keep your coffee to before noon and you're still not sleeping well. This breaks my heart, but I encourage it. Try giving up coffee for a week and see how your sleep quality changes. And it might have to be longer than a week. You could try a month. It will definitely be a withdrawal period. So you want to taper down slowly day by day. But that is only if keeping the coffee before 12 noon isn't working. So keep that coffee and all stimulants before 12 noon, especially if you are caffeine sensitive. Some of us have a genetic predisposition to metabolizing our coffee quicker. So sometimes it's interesting to get that tested just to have data points to go off. Number five, if you struggle with histamine and inflammation like I have in the past, high histamine foods can keep you up at night. So what are high histamine foods? So histamine-rich foods include deli meats or dried meats like that, you know, 30-day aged ribeye, alcohol, aged cheeses, rice vinegar, 
meals that are like ready-made and packaged, salty snacks that have preservatives and artificial colorings. Basically, it's things that have been sitting out and being exposed for air to the air for a while. Histamine liberating foods, okay, these are also ones to avoid, help release histamine from other foods. Some of these you are you're probably going to think, wow, I thought that was healthy. It is a healthy food. It is considered a whole food. It is considered an unprocessed food. However, it is a histamine liberator. So if you are already having issues with histamine intolerance, so like runny nose, clogged sinuses, rashes, skin issues, eczema, these histamine liberators you also want to avoid. And I know way back in the day when I was living in mold, very, very histamine sensitive. And I was making smoothies with spinach. Well, spinach is a histamine liberator. Other histamine liberators, citrus fruits, chocolate. How many times have we been told, eat the dark chocolate, it's good for you. Wheat germ, legumes, tomatoes, vinegars of all kinds. So I don't know if you've ever seen someone be like, drink that lemon water, low citrus, with some apple cider vinegar in the morning. Histamine liberator. I would do that and I would feel terrible all day. And I was like, oh, why do I feel like this? I literally just drank kind of way back in the day, the like influencer health group was telling me to do. Some additives like nitrites, sulfites, glutamate, food dyes, a lot of packaged meats will have nitrites in it, deli lunch meats. So you want to avoid those foods. This is why sometimes medical doctors, if people are having trouble with sleeping, they'll tell you to have an antihistamine before you go to bed because histamine is is causes a reaction in the body and leads to insomnia. So that's why some doctors recommend antihistamines before you go to bed. Ultimately, you want to get to the root cause of what's going on. If you're having a histamine reaction, avoid the histamine liberators, avoid the histamine-rich foods, and then to take it a further step, Figure out why you're having a histamine reaction. Is it dust? Is it mold? Is it something going on? Is it gut dysbiosis? Something else going on in the body. Number, what are we on? Six. Number six, drinking alcohol has been shown to reduce your sleep quality. And I know a lot of people talk about, oh, drink the red wine. It's so good for you. Uh, but can actually increase inflammation. Drinking alcohol only occasionally and in low, moderate amounts, that's okay. But if you're having poor quality sleep, why not remove it for a while? It can wreck your sleep. It can lead to an auto flare or increase inflammation in the body. I know for myself, I have a drink, it will knock me out, and then I'll wake up at like 3 a.m. wide awake. So I'm not getting that quality sleep. Number seven, if you're not working out, you're probably not sleeping. So I recommend working up to, this is for the autoimmune population, 10,000 steps a day and resistance training 20 to 30 minutes, three times a week, working up to four times a week. So many people, like myself included, get really energized from our workout. We feel kind of like jacked up, focused, mental clarity. For some people who have exercise intolerance, they feel the opposite. They feel brain fog. So you might need to dial back and not overtrain in your workout. And if you're feeling jacked up and then you try to go to bed, it's hard to A, fall asleep and then B, stay asleep. 
So I personally don't work out after 5 p.m. I kind of recommend that you don't do either. Ideally, working out in the morning, right? So working out is a stressor on the body. It increases your cortisol. When should your cortisol be highest? Think of cortisol like the sun. Cortisol should be highest in the morning. So if you have a little bit of cortisol dysregulation, like your cortisol is low in the morning, you can start to reset that pattern by working out and jumpstarting your morning by trying to increase your cortisol. If you're walking, I don't really, if you're only walking, I don't consider this a full work, workout. I find that some people who only do walking for their exercise have trouble sleeping. So I encourage you to start to build up with resistance training, 20 minutes, three to four times a week, thyroid strong style, which is my online program teaching women with Hashimoto's to learn how to work out without burnout. And I like harder sessions where you get a sweat, you're stimulating the muscle tissue. I like kettlebells because they are forgiving when you are first learning form. Some people will find that exercising has a relaxing effect versus that like jacked up focused effect. It can actually improve sleep. There's studies on this when, if they work out later. So if you're having luck, if you're not having luck with other approaches, like if you're working out in the morning, you're working out before 12 noon, and you're still not get good, getting good quality sleep, I'm going to try, I'm going to have you try to work out around 8 p.m. and see what happens. If you're not sleeping well anyways, there's really not much to lose. There was a study in 2006 from Sean Youngstead and Christopher Klein looking at the epidemiology of exercise and sleep. And there is a certain population of people who feel more relaxed after they sleep, after they work out, and actually get better sleep when they're working out around 8 p.m. That is not me. I get more jacked and focused. But if that's not working for you to work out in the morning, try in the evening. Just give it a try. What is there to lose? All right. Number eight, rule out sleep apnea. This is essential for anyone who wakes up feeling exhausted, if you've been told you snore, if you wake up in the middle of the night feeling like you're choking, gasping for air, if your partner has mentioned they notice you stop sleeping for a little bit while you're, while, or stop breathing for a little bit while you're sleeping, and especially if you wake up fatigued with big dark circles under your eyes and you're like, oh, I just slept 12 hours, but I'm exhausted, you have to rule out sleep apnea. It is often underdiagnosed and it's so easy to diagnose with a questionnaire, with a sleep study. And now sleep studies are very easy. You don't have to go to a sleep center. You can literally do a take-home sleep study. But obstructive sleep apnea is a common cause of sleep disturbance, especially among the hypothyroid patients. And especially if you're struggling with weight and being overweight. So obstructive sleep apnea is also stressful on the body and very dangerous for long-term health. It can lead to heart conditions, early death, increases whole body inflammation, increases the risk of heart disease, and is crucial to get checked. So when you treat sleep apnea, you can do it right along with addressing Hashimoto's and better sleep will improve thyroid function. Typically, if you get diagnosed with sleep apnea, you will get 
prescribed a CPAP machine, so a machine to help you breathe at night. But I also recommend getting your palate and your jaw looked at. So if you have a narrow jaw, if your chin is kind of set back, if you're kind of flat along the cheekbones, you might have a narrow palate. And then your tongue doesn't sit on the roof of your mouth and it will fall back and kind of cause that choking sensation. So check out Vivos Therapeutics. It is a oral appliance to help expand your palate and helps with allowing the tongue to sit in that place on the roof of the mouth. They combine it with myotherapy, so tongue therapy, to strengthen the tongue so that it sits on the roof of the mouth. Way back in the day, we were breastfed much longer than we are now. And so we created that strength from the suction of the tongue in the mouth. Well, we don't do that that much anymore, especially if we're only breastfed until like, I don't know, six months, not at all. So that could be one of the reasons why sleep apnea is much more prolific, much more common these days. Number nine, avoid screens, blue light. Think of blue light from your, from your phone like the sun. It turns your brain on. You especially want to avoid it between 11 p.m. and 3 a.m. Kind of a no-brainer, but needs to be said. Number 10, the newest research shows six and a half hours of sleep is ideal, uninterrupted. So not getting woken up to pee, not getting woken up by your three-year-old like I am these days. And instead of trying to go to bed at the same time every night, because I know that can feel very stressful, trying to wake up at the same time every day will help reset your circadian rhythm. So that's that was 10. I'm going to include two bonuses. Supplements, and these are not a medical recommendation, but you should definitely consult your medical provider before taking any supplements. But I have found these to be helpful for myself. So I take magnesium at night, and I also take a time-dosed magnesium throughout the day through bio-optimizers. It helps promote relaxation and improves many aspects of sleep, sleep quality. Many of us, just human beings walking on the planet, because our topsoil is not nutrient-rich, it is depleted, and the topsoil is what we grow our vegetables in. But especially the autoimmune population, the Hashi ladies, are commonly deficient in magnesium. So a very important mineral, especially when it comes to relaxation, metabolic processes, and sleep quality. Another supplement that I take is vitamin D3. Vitamin D3 helps with the production of melatonin and works in conjunction with magnesium to support sleep. It's a great idea to take vitamin D3 with vitamin K because they help each other absorb. L-theanine comes from green tea. It helps with relaxation and can help you wind down to sleep. Passionflower. Passionflower is an herb to promote relaxation, also helps with sleep, especially some of the literature out there with the ladies with Hashimoto's. One more, I don't take this, but I've been reading a lot of research around it, is insomnitol, probably the strongest and most effective sleep supplement with melatonin, its precursors, and has a few sedating herbs. So most of these supplements can be taken 30 to 60 minutes before you go to bed. High doses of vitamin D should really only be taken in the morning. Check 
your vitamin D levels before you start just pounding the vitamin D because it is a fat-soluble vitamin and it is possible to overdose on vitamin D. So check with your doctor first before taking supplements always. Last bonus is if you are struggling with sleep, you've done all the things. Sleep mask, earplugs, cooler chili pad to make the temperature and your bed right, turned off the screens, done the workout, changed how you're eating, taken the supplements, hashtag all the things, and you're still not sleeping, you've been dying, you know, diagnosed, you don't have sleep apnea, you need to start to look at environmental triggers that can change the quality of your sleep. The two I'm thinking about are mold and mycotoxins. So if you've had any water damage in your house or in the past, as well as parasites. Those suckers will, especially around the full moon, keep you up at night. So if you have done all the things and you're still not getting good quality sleep, it's hard to fall asleep, you feel tired but wired, it's time to look at environmental factors. So that's the other bonus. I know that was a big shift for me. And, you know, if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and follow the podcast. We used to say subscribe to the podcast, but iTunes took that away. I don't know if it was a connotation around subscribe, but just follow the podcast, rate and review. If you enjoyed the podcast, share with a fellow Hashimoto's friend or sister or family member or your mother. I hope this was helpful. These are some of the things that I did to help me sleep better. And so I want to pass these tips on to you. There's also a blog post on Hashimoto's and sleep at dremilykybird.com forward slash blog. If you're more of the reading type, you can read all the details, all the research is cited in that blog post. I know a lot of Hashi ladies have brain fog, so I like to also do a podcast episode so we can listen while we're walking. Especially the brain fog is strong. I have to be physically reading. So I hope this was helpful and I'll see you next week, ladies.